people don't want to quit their jobs and escape forever. What they often do want, though, is like a one to three month break from worker mode. Welcome to Deviate with Rolf Potts. Today, I talk with consultant and author Paul Millard, who wrote a book called The Pathless Path, Imagining a New Story for Work and Life, which we talk about in this episode. The Pathless Path is a way of making work serve your life rather than the other way around, and it involves embracing the vivid joys of uncertainty, which is actually a line from Vagabonding that Paul repeats back to me in the interview. In the course of our conversation, we talk about what he calls the default path, which tends to be the life that our home culture provides for us, and how in the United States in particular, the default path doesn't necessarily lead to health and happiness. We talk about changing life paths and how this is something that never happens overnight, but tends to evolve over the course of many years. We talk about what happens when a path in life just doesn't feel right, what to do when you feel this is the case, and how living in other cultures can help give you a perspective on your own cultural instincts. Toward the end of the conversation, we talk about the 10 principles that Paul outlines in his book to help embrace the spirit of the pathless path. And we start by talking about how many common American notions of success don't always align with what actually makes us happy in life. Let's listen in. Uh, so, Paul, it's good to talk to you. We I just read your book, The Pathless Path, and I have a lot of questions about it, but it sort of seems that in the United States, there's this assumption that we become complicit in creating lives that we don't want to live, that we're playing this success game that uh, doesn't necessarily lead to happiness. Uh, and I think you quote someone in your book as saying, um, my notion of success used to be to appear to be successful to other people, which, which feels very American to me. Uh, I think we sort of worship success without really knowing what it is. So what's your story and what made you decide to write a book about this approach to success? Yeah, thanks, Ralph. Uh, ex excited to be here and talk with you because I think Part of my journey is just learning from people like you who broadened my perspective and made me think a little deeper about this stuff. But my story is essentially like learning how to desire success. I didn't grow up with these lofty expectations that I had to be this really impressive person, but I kind of developed that desire myself. Hmm. Uh, went down a prestigious path, went into consulting, and the deeper I went into that journey, there was just this disconnect. And I think part of what held me back from taking a bold leap or even starting to discover things like yours, uh, like your approach with vagabonding is I was surrounded by mostly people doing the same thing as me. Hmm. So there was, and this so specifically, narrow... so specifically you went down a business path, right? Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. uh, I went into the business world, mm -hmm. um, right after college and, um, did pretty well. Uh, so when, you're succeeding. Nobody asks you, why are you doing this or succeeding in the traditional way? Mm -hmm. Meaning monetarily succeeding. Yeah, I, th I think it can even be more than that. I think, uh, it, I mean, maybe you experienced this. Like I've been writing online for several years before I published a book. Mm -hmm. And then suddenly you're this author right? Even though it's, it's kind of just a culmination of what you've been writing about anyway. Mm -hmm. And that kind of changes people's perception of what you're doing. Uh, so we have all these like defined stories of what success should look like, should feel like, uh, that 
sort of gives you this free pass where people are like, oh yeah, I totally understand what you're doing. Yeah, but you your your first wave of success wasn't around the book. It was, as I understand it, it was sort of right. six figures at age 27, which outstripped your expectations, but somehow you were in an environment that conditioned you to want more than that. Yeah, so that was a state. So I was working in the consulting world where the default state is sort of keep moving. Uh, if you decide, okay, I'm just going to kind of coast, ride this out, um, find a role I like doing in that environment, it feels like failure because everyone around you is talking about moving, talking about the next steps, talking about better options that, I mean, for me, it was hard. I just sort of felt, is anyone else thinking about this? Like me, am am I the crazy one? (laughs) And it's, sort of took me a while to figure out, okay, maybe I am a bit different than this world I've inhabited for a while. Yeah. I think that there's, this is a common experience in one, in one's twenties, even if you're not working in the business consulting world, that you're sort of conditioned and trained to reach a kind of success. Then when you achieve that success, there's no real conversation happening about what that means or how to make your work serve your life instead of the other way around. And then you sort of get into this sort of, I don't know, for lack of a word, sort of a a party culture. You're working hard during the week, you're partying during the weekend. You sort of hate your work, but you're not thinking about it that much. Um, And so was was there a tipping point for you when you decided that you needed to sort of redefine how success was serving your life or, or it wouldn't be meaningful? One of the things I talk about in the book is that there wasn't this powerful moment or like single inflection point. It was sort of a slow waking up. I think it was first triggered by going through a health crisis after graduate school Uh and uh, being out of work. Literally, I had to take unpaid leave and was just not feeling well in bed. And I had this disconnect where I sort of realized, oh, the idea I had of myself as a person is as a successful worker. Right. Good student, good worker. Oh, Paul's so smart. Uh, and that wasn't true in the moment as I was just kind of laying there and I didn't know if I was going to recover or return to work. Uh, so that was the first sort of questioning I had. And then it was five more years until I decided to take any sort of bold action. But that sort of planted the seeds of doubt about my own identity and my, the own path I wanted to take. Yeah, I think this is worth acknowledging because I think there's sort of a narrative way through which we talk about these, you know, turning points are, are plot points in movies, right? Um, but in life, usually uh, we have more, it's not a 90-minute a experience. And so in retrospect, we, we sort of sometimes uh, see tipping points where, in fact, it may take several years in a, in a slow process. So that's worth acknowledging here. But I'm curious to know when you were not feeling well, obviously you wanted to feel better. Um, but did, did it, but what else did you want at that point? Did, did it make you think about what you wanted from work? Because I think sometimes we're so, we become so focused on work that it's, we don't, we don't see ourselves outside of work and, and we, you know, we get a little bit foggy on how work is serving our lives or what we really want in our lives. I think at first I just desperately wanted to get back on this track I was on. And I think what I was seeking there was just a feeling of safety. 
that mm-hmm. like everything would be okay. There's sort of this safe shield I had with that path where I don't have to ask the questions about what I'm doing. And certainly nobody else is asking me about why I'm doing this thing. Mm-hmm. The longer I was sick though, I think I shifted towards, um, realizing, Oh, I'm changing. And as I started going back to work, I started working part-time at first and then eventually went back to full-time. I sort of had this just, I'm not going to put up with this far edge of nonsense that I might have in the past. And I'm really going to prioritize the things that energize me, the things that bring me alive, the things that matter to me. Uh, so it was just a focus on like, trying to reflect on what matters to me and then trying to do do that and show up as that person in my job. And it wasn't easy, but it sort of shifted me in a new direction. Yeah, it feels like sometimes we're so focused that we don't even think about, um, you know, our goals beyond how work serves our lives. You use a phrase, sort of the idea of getting ahead in life versus coming alive in life. Um and that sort of feeds into the idea of, of what you call the pathless path, which I know is not your phrase. Um, but let's talk a little bit about what you define as the default path versus the pathless path uh, and how, I guess, starting with you, implemented that to sort of sharpen and improve your life. The default path is how I see basically our default stories we grew up with. If you, and I've talked to people from probably 40, 50 different countries about their relationship to work at this point. If you ask them, what is the default story of success? Almost everyone can quickly recite four or five bullet points Mm -hmm. of what that means. It's Mm -hmm. get a job, get married, buy a house. It, It varies slightly, but it's more or less the same. And we all sort of know our default culture script. Uh, and the funny thing when I dig, dug into this, like there's a whole field called uh, cultural scripts in academia where people look at these scripts and then how they vary across culture. Uh, but most of them are oriented on points in your life that occur before the age of 35, mm-hmm. which means unless we're operating in a world where everyone's doing the same thing and we have sort of just get a job in your twenties and then keep that for the rest of your life. Most of people are going through life in a sort of unscripted way. So when you face setbacks, you don't really have a story to orient around. And what I've discovered is people, people are talking about this more now after the pandemic, but before people were just not talking about these things. Hmm. So I would have conversations with people around work and I would ask them, this is like really hard. Are you telling anyone in your life about this? And they would say, no, you're the only person I'm telling. I'm like, you haven't told your spouse this. It's like, no, I fear that if I share this, like people will look down on me. Right. So there's this sort of shame of talking about not being comfortable with work, uh, especially if you're successful. People have this script of, oh, I shouldn't complain. I have a well-paying job or a good job. And it almost seems like, and we'll use a lot of global and travel examples, um, if nothing else, because travel is something I think about all the time and do all the time. But I think there might be an individualism um, component to this because so many global cultures, their scripts, their life scripts, have a cultural specificity wherein they're part of the group. And it's dynamic. And I mean, there's disadvantages to having sort of 
group obligations in one's life script, but is there a sense at which individualism makes us feel more lonely and less connected from the North American standpoint? Yeah, I, th- I think there's, I mean, so my, my now wife, which I met during traveling, uh, she's from Taiwan. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they're definitely a more group oriented culture. And I think, I mean, there's obviously downsides to that as well. Uh, but the advantage of that is you sort of kind of know your role in society and you can call fall back into your role in the family. Uh, I think in the U S we put so much pressure on our outward extrinsic success, um, as a way to kind of make up for that, not knowing our role in Hmm. society. Hmm. And of course there's enormous advantages to this where we have a lot of freedom. Um, but I think the problem is that a lot of extrinsic success can't ever really fill that hole, that need to feel connected to oneself, connected to the world, connected to other people. Uh, extrinsic markers of success, like a promotion, just over and over again, just don't seem to cut it. And people tell you this once they've reached these milestones. Um, but we sort of don't have any other path. So we just keep doing it. Uh, yeah, well, again, there's so many travel metaphors. The idea, uh, of, of the journey, uh, the idea of the journey is often that you don't know where you're going. You're not, you're not sure who you're going to meet or where you're going to go. If, if it, if it, if it travels truly as a journey, uh, then it involves a lot of not knowing. So given that a lot of the default path is culturally scripted, um, how does one go about embracing the pathless path? How do you, how do you break out of the default path in a way that makes you happier, that makes you, gives you a better relationship to work? Yeah. My, my discovery of this was sort of naive and slow. I think a lot of why I wrote my book is I wanted to shift away from this, like quit your job and be happy path. Mm -hmm. I sort of tell people now, uh, it might suck, but it might also be worth it as a way to sort of frame t- stepping into an uncertain path, especially if you you were like deep on a path like mine for several years. But uh, at first, I just wanted to escape. Like I wanted to quit my job. And the first thing I did was actually go take a trip abroad. And it's funny, on that trip, I don't think I really tapped into enjoying i was looking up a couple quotes from your book before this but uh you call it the vivid joys of uncertainty Hmm. and i don't think i really enjoy like felt that in that first trip Mm -hmm. but there was the sense that i should keep exploring that sort of non-work mode um and detaching myself so I came back to the U.S. after that month and worked as a freelance consultant and I sort of made it work, but I had enough of freedom in my life and space and time that I kept being pulled towards that uncertainty. Like something just deep inside me told me that uncertainty is worth following. Is this where you met a woman in Italy and you were in a situation where you're, you, yeah. you're talking about how you're, you had quit a job or you're working less and she's like, well, get another job. And you were sort of in a moment where your default would have been to add her on LinkedIn and, and, and think about that. <laughs> but you, you sort of gave yourself permission to not really know your next job. Talk about that a little bit. 
Yeah, that that's a interesting moment because I I think that was on that first one month trip. It was immediately after I quit my job. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I was so fresh to this just space in my life. Um, And that was one of the first moments when I looked back. It was like, oh, that was a really powerful moment where I was starting to give permission to myself to sort of lean into the possibilities of the journey I had started on. Mm -hmm. But I had no idea what was going to come next. And it was a lot of just small moments like that where I started giving myself permission, becoming a little more curious about the world that slowly drew me more and more towards uh, taking another one month trip a year later and eventually deciding to go sort of full vagabonding mode. Yeah, this is worth acknowledging because I think there is this sort of ethos of quit your job and be happy, but that's such a simplistic distillation of how it actually works that uh, it's not (laughs) one day you're working and stressed out and the next job you've quit and you're traveling the world and you'll be happy. I I think everyone, it takes a long time to give yourself permission and to understand how it works. Um, And so... um, like just how did you work your way into this and in, in the years that followed and and what did you learn and how did you learn to i guess there's a, there's an equation in your book where we often we we put up with our suffering with our unhappiness in like work environments uh because it's familiar it's familiar suffering and then we add coping mechanisms um and you say that on the other side of that is uncertain discomfort that embracing uncertain dif- uncertainty basically um, has benefits that, that familiar suffering doesn't. Uh, and so how did you come to this realization? How did this, if it wasn't an epiphany one day, how over the, the ensuing years did you work your way into embracing uncertain discomfort? It was just the acknowledgement along my journey. Uh, it would have been really easy to tell the story of, Oh, I quit my job and I'm thriving. I'm so happy. Uh, But I noticed over and over again that I was still really uncomfortable. It was hard. It was uncertain. I started having to grapple with all all these fears. and But at the same time, I also wanted to keep going. So I started asking, like, why do I want to keep going? And eventually I realized I'm just excited about what might emerge, the possibilities of my life. And I think in my previous path, it was too certain. I knew exactly what would happen if I worked in a certain way and just basically just kept showing up in my life it, with like 99% certainty. Like I could predict what the next five to 10 years of my life would be. And it was too much certainty for me. And I think letting that uncertainty creep in um, was really exciting. And I think travel was really a gateway to learning how to enjoy that uncertainty. I think you write about in your book um in i quoted this earlier but enriching your travels with the vivid joys of uncertainty Mm -hmm. and being able to step into that mode and start experiencing things that were happening to me which were really exciting so i'd be worried about money during the same day that I was like making new friends or learning new things about the world and myself and realizing, Oh, this is actually worth pursuing. You, you have a quote, um, that I'm going to get wrong, but it's basically we waste years by not wasting hours. What does that mean? We're so focused on, I mean, productivity is this word where 
it resonates with a deep fear in us. I think at our core, most of us want to be useful. We want to feel that we matter. We want to feel that we're contributing. However, that's sort of been hijacked to making us think if we're not doing things, then we are a failure. And this is definitely a very powerful American script Hmm. of, I need to be doing something. Oh, I had such a productive Sunday. And then when you ask people, well, what was so productive about it? Oh, I did chores. I cleaned my house, all these things. It's like, why are we using the word productive for that? And implicit in that, it's sort of a judgment of saying, if you're not doing stuff, you're sort of not a useful person. Um, Except if we want to do useful work, especially if you're trying to do creative work, you sort of need to waste time. (laughs) And it's even hard to talk about this without even using the language of waste, right? We're saying waste time. Mm -hmm. Um, But I'm, I'm sure you as a writer, like, you know, to write, you actually need to not write. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Sometimes you need to go for a walk, you know. Or, or yeah, talk to your the, wife or eat a meal or something. That was the process of writing my book. Uh, I would get to points and I think I had learned this just from traveling and just trusting the uncertainty and not knowing what comes next. But in writing my book, I would sort of get stuck. And one decision could just be to power through and spend a lot of time trying to write through that. The other is just to stop working on it for a couple of weeks and let the answers emerge. You use a Chinese phrase that that literally means non-doing. Um, how have you implemented that and what does it mean in its its own cultural context? Yeah, so the phrase is wei. Uh It's a Chinese term, uh, non-doing. I mean, people have been talking about this uh, for thousands of years. Uh, it's not really a word that we have a good phrase for in English or Western cultures. Um, It's sort of the in-between between doing stuff and feeling lazy, right? Hmm. It's this in-between state of you're not doing stuff, but you're not lazy. You're sort of in an active engagement with the world. You're contemplating the mysteries of the universe, uh, what matters in your life. Or you could even be in a sort of active state where you're engaged in conversation. It could be a a writing state where things are just flowing. Um, But it's not something that really ever made sense of me until I ended up moving to Taiwan. Uh, So I moved to Taiwan and I had this release from the default scripts from America after probably about a month there. And I didn't know how I was supposed to feel. In the Taiwan context, I didn't know what the default scripts that were there. I had trouble communicating. I learned some Chinese to like eat and communicate with people, but didn't really know the deeper uh, meaning behind things. And it was this sort of in-between state where I didn't really have anything going on for a month or two. And I just felt really free, but also connected to myself in the world in a way that was really hard to explain. And I think when I started learning about this idea of non-doing, uh, it just really brought to life something I was experiencing. Yeah, it's almost like a spiritual principle. 
And it occurs to me that in America, we talk about spirituality sometimes in sort of a woo-woo way, you know, almost as a lifestyle accessory, when in fact, spirituality is really about getting back to our core selves. It's about not planning a life for the future so much as embracing the life for the now. Um, how did, keeping in mind, you know, obviously, I, I use a lot of Korean metaphors uh, to sort of shed light on American individualism because I lived there for a long time, but that doesn't mean Korea is a perfect land. And in fact, that can be a really workaholic place. Um, how did living in China, which itself is not a perfect culture or Taiwan, which is itself not a perfect culture, but help you get perspective on things through things like the idea of not doing, how did that give you perspective on the life you had been living versus the life you could be living? So it was an interesting time. I, I quit my job. I took that trip to Europe for a month after I quit my job. Then I was freelancing in Boston and I ended up taking a trip to Asia for a month. And that's where I first experienced living in Taiwan. And I think the culture was so distant uh, from the default American culture that I was used to. Like I couldn't read the signs. I couldn't talk to people. Um, and I was just learning so much. Uh, that it pulled me there. And that's why I ended up going there. I think what I experienced after spending considerable time in Taiwan, uh, I ended up spending about uh, three months there when I first went there. I really sort of softened into myself. Hmm. So it was this literal disconnect of cultures, but it was also this um, deeper just release of these past narratives I was experiencing. So my first year of being self-employed after I quit my job, I still felt the pull of American culture. So I had this space in my life to kind of wonder and uh, contemplate my life and reflect and experience different modes of being. But I was still like literally in Boston. Hmm. Hmm. So being in Taiwan, it, it, I didn't know how I was supposed to feel. So it was a, a little more freeing. And the more time I spent in that, and as you start to learn a culture, right, you start to learn not only the good sides, but the challenging parts of those cultures. And you just realize there are so many different perspectives in the world. Yeah, it feels like perspective is as important as place, that um, it need not be Taiwan or Korea. You could you know, go live in Central Asia or something, and it gives you perspective uh, on your, on the own narratives, the own cultural narratives through which you define your life. So it feels like the, the perspective you got in Taiwan was important just by, it allowed you to see your American narrative from the outside. So where did you take things from there? Um, how did you, how did you sharpen a sense for the pathless path? So, the thing that happened to me is I, I fell in love as hmm. often happens on, uh, when you go travel, hmm. um, about a month into my trip in Taiwan, I met my now wife, uh, Angie, and that sort of committed me to this path because in my mind, I was testing out living abroad. I was going to go to Taiwan for three I was going to go, what I was going to do is go to Taiwan for two months and then I was going to go to Vietnam for a month and then Bali for two months. But I had no plan after that. I was sort of thinking, okay, maybe I'll return back to the US. So I met Angie and I decided 
wow, this, well, we sort of both decided, the universe decided that this relationship was legit. Uh, <laughs> it wasn't going away. And she was starting a new journey as a fitness trainer in Taiwan. So I, I committed to going back to Taiwan with her after I was planning to go to Bali. Um, and we both just sort of had this passion for exploring the uncertainties in life, um, travel and exploring all these things. So it, it was a natural progression to, um, be embracing the uncertainty of what came, came next. And as part of that, I didn't really have any work I was doing. So I was living off savings at the time and I was trying to do freelancing abroad, but this was pre remote work and I was having a hard time finding the kind of work I had done in the past while in Asia. Uh, so I just started writing. I started, uh, creating a course that eventually started making money about a year later. Um, and I just started doing things that felt right and that I was called to do. Um, None of it seemed logical at the time. I still had money and security, uh, but I was sort of anchored by this relationship that was like, this is one of the most important things in my life now, and I'm going to orient around this, and I'm just going to have try to have faith that things are going to work out. There's a Joseph Campbell quote that you, that you mention in your book, and I'll probably get it wrong, but it's the idea of seeking a certain kind of life versus accepting the life that is waiting for us. It sounds like maybe Angie in Taiwan was waiting for you. Um, maybe a lot of people are listening to this and thinking, yeah, but you know, how do I even know the life that is waiting for me? Um, it, it, you know, it's almost too pat that Paul found his true love in Taiwan and that shaped things. So what would you say to people who are still hanging on to certain certainties because they're, they don't trust the life that's waiting for them? Yeah, it's, I mean, it's, it's pretty cliche what happened to me. It's, it's impossible to talk about and <laughs> without acknowledging that. I think what I'd say is we often know when we're on the wrong path. Hmm. Right. Yeah. And I think it's, it's often more important to release the grip that we have or that, that kind of path has on us mm -hmm. rather than seeking out anything. I think there's probably thousands of possible lives for us that might feel natural. And the most important thing we can do to sort of stumble into those, uh, is by paying attention, right? It's having the intuition that, okay, this path is not right. I felt that very early on in my business career, but I didn't have the courage to listen to it because I probably knew deep down in a way that I couldn't articulate that if I listened to it, I'd have to blow up my life and that would be painful. Um, so like when I arrived in Taiwan, it was a sort of stripping down and unwinding of my life. So by then I had gotten rid of all my possessions, like not by any intention. I had sort of lost the freelance work I was doing. Um, I didn't know what was coming next. And I was just letting things happen. Uh, so when I met Angie as well, she was quitting her job and was planning to go to Thailand. And we were just talking about this the other day. It's like, it was kind of crazy that we just decided to live together and travel in Thailand for a month. Uh, but that's what we did. And the, I think 
six weeks into our relationship, she said, well, I'm quitting my job. I'm going to Thailand. I said, well, I guess I'm coming with you. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And it was during that trip that we sort of like, there's just a deep knowing and understanding that this, this relationship is going to keep going. We have no idea what's going to happen with our lives. And there's an inherent uncertainty of dating someone from another culture, Hmm. right? Or not another culture, but just living in another country so far from your home country. Mm -hmm. Like you can't just default into like a default American script. Like we're going to go buy a house and live in the suburbs. It's like, (laughs) there's no story or script for what we're attempting to do. Yeah, it's interesting. You you mentioned the idea that there's there's thousands of possible lives we can live now, which is sort of a modern notion because it used to be, well, you grew up in the village, you married a girl from the village, you did the same job your father did. And so this is sort of the um the burden of choice is is that we have to choose one, and I think sometimes it's um knowing we're, that we're on the wrong path is something we internalize for too long. Um that it's something that we feel and then we put up with, but we don't let go of it because again, we don't know. It's, it's hard to embrace uncertainty. It's still impossible to choose, right? So the overwhelming uncertainty of being on a path like mine, being self-employed is that I can literally work on anything at any time. Uh, and what you realize is you still have to choose things. And the opportunity of embracing an uncertain path is that you have the opportunity to choose and proactively sort of design your life and make commitments, right? So I may not know how I'm going to make money and that would might unsettle people beyond their comfort zone. But I do know I'll continue to write. I'll continue to engage and help people. I'll continue to teach. I'll continue to uh, be curious about these ideas. I'm committed to my relationship. So I may not know like where I'm going to be living or how I'm going to make money, but the things that make me feel rooted and connected to the world, like I'm very sure about those in a way I didn't feel confident about before. So in some ways, like what I call the pathless path, committing to this uncertainty, I actually feel way more grounded and secure than I did on my previous path, which I think is hard for people to understand unless you've really embraced this uh, discomfort and uncertainty. Yeah, I think there's something to that. Um, I think my story doesn't involve, like I, I eventually met my true love, my wife Kiki, but I was in my 40s before I met her, right? I, um, I sort of immediately knew that she was my person, but I had a whole, I had a decade and a half of of my own pathless path before that was that part of my life made sense. But it feels like maybe sort of understanding my core desires, what I wanted was helpful because I got into writing myself, obviously much earlier than you, I'm, I'm older than you, but the writer's career looks a lot different in 2022 than it did in 1998 when I started doing it or 1999 when I started doing it full time. And so it feels like, um, if I had been outcome oriented, um, that would have been really stressful as opposed to just realizing that I loved the act of writing outcomes, notwithstanding. Um, and I think that there's something there was, it was almost like there was a core self-knowledge required for me to identify that when I met Kiki, who became my wife, I immediately knew, um, in part because I wasn't trying to cross 
the wife box off my list, but I sort of, the world put me in the same, in the same space as her and it, and it made sense. Um, and so, yeah, I guess, I guess some people might be listening and, and, and thinking, well, you know, what if I don't meet my true love when I first travel overseas? Or what if I don't figure out my job? How can we work our way into embracing this uncertainty? Um, if we, if we don't know, I guess that's, that's the core question because I think, <laughs> I, I think narratively we look back for, Kierkegaard said that life is lived forwards and understood backwards, that we, we look back at our lives and we pinpoint turning points when in fact, when we're living forward, we don't see those turning points. And so, uh, for people who are listening and say, uh, sure, it sounds good for you, Rolf. You, you wrote a book when you were 32. It sounds good for you, Paul. You, you met your true love when you first moved overseas. How can they embrace the not knowing? Um, and the, the, just the notion that change is understood backwards, but it can be intimidating when you're going forwards in life. Yeah. So I, I would guess the listeners of your podcast are already primed to be open hmm. to these ideas. And I might reframe, uh, how you're thinking about this to say that, I, I mean, what I've discovered, and I think you do a really good job of, uh, bringing this alive and vagabonding is that this tendency, there's a certain personality type which has this desire to explore the unknown. And now more than ever, it's easier to do that. Um, you look back in history and like people would go through all sorts of hoops just to explore, just to do these things, just to have these experiments in their life and have to deal with like social shame and all these things. So, I think it's figuring out like who you are. I think what I've written about uh, is that this path is actually easier for me because I have a unreasonable desire for freedom. I like tinkering with technology and doing things online and connecting with people in that way. I also really like writing and I don't seem as phased by the uncertainty of not knowing where money will come from six months from now as other people are, right? If you are the type that has such crippling anxiety from not knowing where money comes from, you probably shouldn't follow my path. Hmm. But I think like what I've realized is people often don't want to escape work. I didn't actually want to escape work. What I wanted to find was work worth doing and things that mattered to me and helped me feel connected to the world. Hmm. People don't want to quit their jobs and escape forever. What they often do want, though, is like a one to three month break from worker mode. And I think this is probably the big opportunity for more people is that seeing that creating space in your life and disconnecting from this default path, this default worker mode might lead you in a direction. You might go back to your job. Um, but in a way that injects a little more playfulness, a little mm. more serendipity, a little more um, energy into your life than you'd expect. And I've seen a lot of people uh, take that path. Yeah, no, that's a good point to make that it's it's not an all or none thing. It's it's sort of fine tuning um, one's life rather than an either or before after type equation. Um, I think I might just go through the, the 10 principles you list at the end of the book about the pathless path. And without getting too far into the weeds, we can just riff on each one of these 10 principles, uh, just sure. so people can sort of think about them in the context of their own lives. So number one, 
on your list is um, question the default. What does that mean? Surprisingly, I don't think people are really thinking too deeply around the default scripts in their lives. They know they're there, but they don't really question why they're there. So often a question I'll ask people is, what is work? And Hmm. if you ask 100 people that, you will get 100 different definitions. And then when people start talking about it, they go, oh, wow, there's a lot there. I think of work as paid employment, or I think of work as this broader aspect of things. And just questioning, okay, what path am I opted into? What are the incentives of that? Where did this come from? Is this coming from the industrial economy? Are there religious elements to this that have influenced our relationship to work and all those things? Now, you don't have to go spend five years of your life exploring this like I have and writing a book about it. Uh, but just asking some of the surface level questions of like, why are we doing all this? And where do these ideas come from? Well, number two seems like a direct offshoot of number one. It's reflect. What does that mean? Yeah. And that's just asking the questions uh, that are scary. I think I refuse to ask them for so many years. I would... Uh, optimize around, oh, I'm slightly unhappy in this job. I'll just try to find a better job, right? And deep down, there was this, as my friend Kay, he calls it, uh, like a pebble in my shoe. Hmm. Like something was off. And I was refusing to just take my shoe off and try to see, oh, it's just a pebble. Um, I was just trying to like change my clothes instead of like taking my shoe off and getting rid of the pebble. Uh, so I was refusing to ask those questions of like, what is the life I want? What am I scared of? What am I really afraid of? Um, and I think, I mean, there's so many exercises you can do, but I think one of the things you can do is just write down, what do you value? And then is that aligned with how you're actually living your life? And then the scary thing is to say, okay, am I willing to actually call out my own BS? Like huh. Jerry Colonna says, how are you complicit in creating the conditions you claim to not want? I love that question. Huh. Uh, and I mean, some people don't like asking these questions, but I imagine your listeners on this podcast definitely uh, like asking some of these deeper questions. Well, I hope so. Uh, number three is figure out what you have to offer. How about that? Yeah, I think there's this deep need to be useful or be helpful to other people. Uh, Again, most people don't want to just go escape life and go live on a beach. I'm sure you've discovered this over and over again in your travels. Most people, given enough time on that beach, start doing stuff, right? They start volunteering locally. They start Mm -hmm. doing some sort of work. They start writing. I mean, this is often why writing is so... Uh, popular in people that travel or people that are nomadic is because they want to share what they're learning and they want to share this wisdom uh, that's timeless uh, with other people. Uh, so that can be a way, but really figuring out um, what are the things where when you do them, you start to feel connected to yourself, hmm. connected to other people and do shift from, oh, I'm doing this for an outcome to get published or something to, I am writing because it brings me alive and it's energizing. 
Yeah, I use that beach analogy in Vagabond and the idea that in bank robber movies, everybody gets all this money and escapes to the beach, but there's never a discussion of what happens on the beach. And I think people, people get bored pretty quickly. Um, uh, number four might tie into this pause and disconnect. Why is this important? Yeah, that was my experience in Taiwan, I think. Uh, just like the literal disconnect from my default stories and scripts and world in the U.S. And also just pausing the moving forward. Uh, I think there's a trap. I call these hustle traps, even on the self-employment path of always be uh, grasping at some future goal or future identity or future state, or I want to be part of this group. Um, and just allowing ourselves to exist in that space between doing and feeling lazy, right? It's sitting in the non-doing and just seeing what comes up and trying to do that. I mean, this is, uh, the alternative to a vacation, right? Another quote I highlighted in reviewing your book this morning, a vacation after all merely rewards work, vagabonding justifies it, right? Mm -hmm. So we can work to create that space and then kind of pause and disconnect. This feels key. I think people forget to do this. Um, they, they replace their plan, the plan they don't like with a plan, you know, that sort of mimics the plan they don't like. And so I think pausing and, and just sort of letting time flow through you is important. Well, I think it's hard too, because if you have certain skills or you're good at things, there's so many semi-interesting things to do hmm. that you can then devote your time to, right? Especially if you develop a skill, which you like doing, it's always easy to just keep doing that or opt into another goal. Uh, and it's actually very unintuitive and painful to say, I'm going to not do that for three months and realize, oh, I'm leaving money on the table. I'm leaving opportunity on the table. I'm leaving uh, outcomes that would be beneficial to my life on the table, all in pursuit of this uh, just deeper faith that this existing in this space is going to be worth it. Number five is is also maybe a little bit counterintuitive. It's go make a friend. What does that mean? Yeah, I think... If you're trying to take an unconventional path and everyone you know was on a conventional path before that, existing in that tension is going to be painful. And you're not going to change the mind of those people <laughs> that hmm. your path is the noble path, right? Much easier to find other people on similar paths at the same point or ahead of you on that path. That makes sense. And I think you can make friends like metaphorically by finding people in public. I think podcasts and discovering people like you and Tim Ferriss early in my journey were really important. And Seth Godin as well. Just knowing these people exist that are ahead of me on uncertain paths and liking their life. Like I joke that Seth Godin was my only friend when I left my job that was on an uncertain path. Hmm. But just knowing that he was so excited about his creative path a couple of decades in life ahead of me uh, and that he just existed was so exciting and motivating for me. Um, and eventually I made in real life friends, uh, which was probably a lot more important. But I think we can use those inspirations of uh, ideas, books, quotes, uh, podcasts uh, early on in our path. 
I think so. You know, one reason I started a podcast is that I, I listened to them so much. I wanted to be a part of the conversation. You know, I was, I, I wanted to talk back enough that, um, that, uh, it made sense for me to organize a way to talk back. Uh, and so that, that, that's metaphorical at several levels is, is make a friend different than networking. And if so, how? <laughs> yeah, I, I think networking is sort of this thing in the default path mode where, we sort of know it's a transactional relationship, right? Mm. We're connecting with someone for some future purpose. Whereas I would define making a friend or finding the others on the journey as existing in the present, right? You're connecting because of the shared vulnerability, shared experiences. And it's this uh, slow invitation to a deeper uh, connection that in best cases could be a lifetime connection, uh, or in other cases, there are these, uh, connections that help each other at a certain point of time. I, I think that's why travel friends can be some of your best friends because you're, you're, you're sharing, <laughs> so you're sharing vulnerability. I, I literally, I have so many good friends, you know, I have, I have school friends and friends from other phases of my life, but I think, you know, I'm a, I'm a fairly hardwired Midwestern guy, vulnerability doesn't come naturally, but it's just easier to be vulnerable on the other side of the world with someone that you're not sure what your relationship to them is yet. So that feels like a yeah. good analogy there. Yeah. The, you can sort of skip all the surface level conversations. I think some of my best friends, I met uh, this guy, Johnny Miller, uh, about a year into my path. And we sort of went from zero to vulnerability in <laughs> probably a few minutes mm -hmm. because we both had no idea what our futures entailed. We were both, uh, he was already on a nomadic journey. I was about to start mine. We had no idea. So it wasn't even worth talking about that. We both already knew that. So it's like, we're just sharing our insecurities and fears and excitements about the future. Um, and it led to the, it's led to this, uh, wonderful friendship, which is still, uh, important part of my life. Yeah, I think sometimes when aging people look back fondly on their youth, they're looking back at those vulnerable moments, you know, and if we can keep carrying that vulnerability with us, then it can really deepen our lives. We make friends based on life stages early in our life, mm -hmm. right? We're mm -hmm. friends with people because we're also going to school together, right? Or we're in the same job or we're at the same point in our career. And I think one of the cool things I've discovered on this pathless path is I've connected with people of all ages because hmm. you're connecting more on interest first or vulnerability first rather than, Hey, we're on the same life stage. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There's actually ethnologists have, have noticed, noted that uh, travelers are actually less likely to judge based on age. Um, oh, wow. That they used to study like, tra backpacker cultures based at, at sort of a youth travel vernacular. And it's often, you know, mostly it's young backpackers who have less money staying in certain places, but they realized that it was more about that mindset. Um, what we could call that shared vulnerability of travel. Uh, and that's exciting. You know, as a guy who's now in his fifties, it is exciting to think that the memories I created, um, in my, in my twenties were special, but I can still do that. You know, I can still engage the world in a vulnerable way. Number six is go make something. What does that mean? Yeah. So I think most of us have this internal creative urge. And I think definitely people that are drawn towards an uncertain path tend to have some sort of thing they want to express in the world. Right. And with the internet, I think the possibilities are just amazing right now. It's so easy to start a podcast, a blog, writing online, sharing things. Um, 
but also more broadly, like make art. Uh, you can also create an experience, right? You can go make a uh, dinner event where you invite people around ideas. And I think this is super important because it shifts people away from sort of waiting for permission to do things towards creating life and designing your life. So you can create these spontaneous um, experiences in your life where you're taking action and you're seeing things happen. And it, it can give you this sense of agency that, oh, I may have some control um, in this life. And it can help build that confidence to make uh, bigger and bigger changes over time. Yeah, somebody I interviewed recently, Sophia Bentehera, who went hitchhiking across Europe to learn how to make pastries. Uh, and I love that concept, you know, just the idea that you don't necessarily, it doesn't have to be a blog. It can be just a dessert, right? Um, and she sort of went in with the attitude that it wasn't necessarily going to be the rest of her life. She wasn't going to become a, a pastry entrepreneur, but that creative focus gave form to her travels. It was, it was interesting. Seven is give generously. What does that mean? Yeah, this, this is a way also to disconnect from the normal default path mode, which is transaction mode. Uh, we grow up in this environment, especially in the U.S., where we have this ideal of financial independence. And unfortunately, financial independence really just means you're paying people for stuff. And implicit in paying people to do stuff for you or paying for goods and services is that once there's a transaction, the connection between the people is over. And we have this mm -hmm. phrase, uh, you don't owe me anything, right? But generosity right. is actually this deeper invitation towards a uh, connection and saying, I'm going to give you something. And it's an invitation to sort of a deeper relationship. Um, and that's terrifying. I think one of the things I've done on my path is try to give generously help people on paths behind me, help people with their writing, help people with money if I can just give people money for no reason. And sort of just practicing uh, doing that, I think helps put you in a different mindset towards other people and seeing the world more as abundant than uh, as this um, scarce world, which I think if you're trying to aim towards financial independence and literally just being able to pay for everything, it leads you towards seeing everything as a trade-off and time is money rather than money as time. That, that feels like something that one can do on the road, but also at home. Uh, the idea that, Definitely. Um, yeah, that money need not be abstracted. It can be a part of, maybe a, it, it can be a non-passive aggressive part of how we maintain relationships and, and, um, I, there's there's sort of a parent-child metaphor in some things. We sort of grow up taking, and then we, we grow up and become parents, and we start giving. Um, but it feels like it's all about the relationship, right? Yeah, it's it's very normal in families, right? It would be a little weird in most families to uh, start paying off your parents for every meal they cook for <laughs> you at home. Right. Right. <laughs> and I think with generosity, for me, it's... How can I expand that sphere, not to the whole world, um, but how can I expand that sphere like 20% more? Hmm. Yeah, family is a good metaphor. You know, if you, if you sort of have a familiar relationship to relationships, then um, you, can, you can sort of center love and generosity in certain ways. Um, number eight is experiment. What does that mean? Yeah, this, this is an alternative towards sort of picking a path and planning. 
Um, I think it's very easy, even on an uncertain path to say, oh, I want to be a certain identity, right? I want to be a successful podcaster. Instead, I'm now calling this like the ship quit and learn uh, approach, which is basically just try something. What's the least? Uh, and I mean, I'm sort of remixing this from Tim Ferriss's approach. Mm-hmm. Um, what's the minimum viable thing you can do just to test whether you like doing it? Design it for quitting, right? So if you're going to do a podcast, uh, decide to quit. This is what I did in 2018. Um, I just said, I'm going to do five episodes if I don't like it and then walk away if I don't like it. Mm. Uh, so I didn't spend a lot of money on it. Uh, I just sort of bought a mic and got started. Um, and then the third component is learn. So at the end of the experiment, ideally you designed it in a short period of time. The only goal is to figure out what to do next. So with podcasting, I realized I actually like the challenge of trying to become a better interviewer. And I just love the experience of connecting with somebody at a deeper level through a podcast. Uh, so I'm going to keep going. Yeah, no, this feels key too. Like, like, um, pause and disconnect felt very important, but experiment is good too. I mean, it's uh, in experimenting, you're almost front loading the idea of failure or even just sort of redefining what success and failure is, because I think you can learn from that process, from that experiment process. Um, Number nine is a little bit different because it's, it's commitment or, or commit. Number nine is commit, um, which goes beyond experiment. What does that mean? I think infinite options is probably worse than picking a path on the default path. If you're, if you're not enjoying the default path. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if you go from, okay, I want to escape that certain path towards, I'm not going to commit to anything. Mm-hmm. Eventually that's just going to be an even worse state. Because you're just going to be crippled by endless opportunity coming at you every day. I think important is first pause and disconnect. Do the experiments, uh, create things, make things. Um, but then when you find something, and I think this is where just listening to your intuition, listen to your body, pay attention to how you're feeling. Once you find those things, commit to them in an indefinite uh, lifetime way. I I'm guessing this is writing for you, right? You've consistently written for for so long, right? I, I imagine there was a point when you realized, oh, wow, this is something really exciting. I'm going to keep doing this indefinitely. Yeah, well, I think it, um, it's a practice, too. My wife gives me a yeah. hard time sometimes because it's not just the writing. It's the going on walks and, <laughs> and, and thinking about things. It's also... So true. Collecting ideas for decades, you know, your commonplace book, the idea where you, you, you read something, you, you, you tuck away a few quotes and then you, you, you trot them out later when they, when they make sense. When you were talking about committing, I was thinking of something that Goethe said years ago. He said that the charm and insolence of youth is that assuming in, in assuming he could be anything, he assumes he is everything, right? Um, and it's in choosing, I'm paraphrasing him now. It's in choosing that we choose ourselves, right? So we sort of bask in potential. When we're young, especially, we bask in potential, but it's not until we choose one thing that we become who we are, right? Yeah, and I think for me, writing emerged in those first months of Taipei, Hmm. living in Taiwan and specifically in Taipei. uh, I didn't have anything to do, uh, but I kept showing up and writing and I found it so thrilling. 
and it, I sort of realized, okay, this is something that matters. I'm going to commit to this. I sort of adopted this ma- mantra of write most days. And I've more or less done that ever since. Mm-hmm. And then once you find those things, for me, the whole game is to design my life around it such that it continues to happen. And I look for wisdom in my writing now. So if I'm not writing for an extended period of time, something's off. And I need to tinker and sort of readjust. And yeah, I I mean, I definitely resonate with like the walks and stuff, right? Mm. One thing I realized last year, uh, we were locked down for a period in Taiwan. And I was totally stuck. And I realized, oh my gosh, I changed my environment. And I haven't taken a long walk in two months. Wow. (laughs) So I went for this really long walk in uh, my wife's hometown in Taichung. And, uh, like everything just started opening up again, (laughs) but this is what life is too. It's remembering, forgetting and remembering again. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that the the commitment has different tasks for, for different, for different disciplines. I bring that up because sometimes I can get into my decades long commitment as a writer, um, and then I forget that my satisfaction is different from my wife's. You know, my wife is an actor, and so she has to perform, in a sense, right. to, to get that professional satisfaction. Um, and so I think that there's no one-size-fits-all to this commit thing. You know, that, that sometimes I forget that I can write something and be satisfied with it, but until she performs, you know, the satisfaction of her discipline and her genius and her commitment doesn't come through. So uh, there's many different ways... Um, to, to commit to a, to, to disciplines. I guess you, I guess your wife is, is a trainer. Um, yeah. So she's, she's been on a bit of a pathless path herself. She hmm. used to work in tech, left her job to become a fitness trainer. And I think on the experience of becoming a fitness trainer, I think she discovered it wasn't as much trying to, uh, change careers as much as exploring the uncertainty and trying hmm. to learn new things. And it, she discovered along the way that, uh, art was something that mattered to her and creativity and movement and really just learning. So I think that's been a big bond for us is just around, um, trying to figure out how to design a life around all that. Yeah, no, it's, uh, I haven't been married very long. I'm older than you, but I'm probably been married less than you, but that's an exciting part of the relationship is sort of the dovetailing of our, of our pathless paths, so to speak. Number 10, last one is be patient. What does that mean? Yeah, I think, If we go online and start Googling around, how do you quit your job? You'll inevitably discover things that give you a quick fix, right? Quit your job and follow these 10 steps and you'll be okay. The real wisdom is that these things are slow. Most people take a meandering path to figuring things out. Uh, It's often really frustrating and like the journey of self-discovery is really a lifelong one. There, there's no ever arriving. And if we're always seeking that arrival, we're going to be disappointed. Right. And I think people discover this when they have fixed points they're aiming at on a traditional career, right? They arrive at the CEO position and then they burn out two years later and say, it wasn't worth it. Well, I think, I think satisfaction is sort of tied into patience too. I was just thinking, you know, when I was 25, when I took my first vagabonding trip, I tried to write a book about it. 
Uh, and I was so frustrated, you know, I was, I, I felt like a failed writer at age 25. In retrospect, I'm so glad that book was never published. I'm so glad that my success as a writer was not hinged or even flowing out of something I had done at that age, that I really needed those seven more years before Vagabonding came out to, um, to become the writer that I, that I was and am. And so I think patience can be frustrating, but it's necessary in certain ways. Yeah. And I think I, uh, I think based on my past path, I was always eager to keep moving and keep jumping to the next job. And I sort of learned that was not a healthy state to be in. So I've learned to trust being patient. So in some cases, I've gone a lot slower than I otherwise might be able to, mm -hmm. especially with the writing. I sort of waited for the signals from the world that it was time to write a book. All through 2020, I had been writing uh, more and more about our relationship with work. And I had been writing about this for a few years. Uh, but with the pandemic, more and more people were reaching out to me. So I had this explosion of ideas and people talking to me. Uh, it was really exciting. And it wasn't until the end of the year. I had like three or four people talk to me within a couple of weeks. And they all sort of said the same thing. Paul, you have a lot written on this. What's like the, the overall takeaway? How do the, all these ideas connect? When are you going to write a book? And I, I sort of took that as like, okay, now I think it's time. Um, whereas I, I might have been able to force something a couple of years prior, uh, but it wouldn't have been uh, something that felt right and felt in the flow of my life. Yeah, no, patience seems like such a, a good thing to, to couple with commitment, you know, that just because you're choosing yourself doesn't mean that it's going to happen immediately. Um, considering we're near the top of the hour here, what can you leave us with um, having committed and written a book called The Pathless Path? For people who are listening, what can you leave us with us about how to embrace that? Yeah, I, th I think my underlying message is that I talk to so many people about their relationship to work and so many people tell me that things feel off, things feel uncomfortable. And what I want to tell most people is you're just normal. Uh, we haven't been talking to each other about this discomfort. So many people in all sorts of different paths. I've talked to people of different uh, ranks and companies, different wealth, different socioeconomic, different cultural backgrounds, different countries. Everyone's feeling this in today's world. I think the internet has changed so much. The, the way we work is changing so rapidly that feeling like things are off is your normal. And also by just starting to think a little deeper about this, you might discover that there's a different way of structuring your life or just experimenting around the edges that might inject a little more playfulness, uh, excitement, potentially love, who knows, into your life um, that might make the journey a little more uh, worthwhile. This has been Deviate with Rolf Potts. More about everything that was just mentioned, including links to Paul Millard's book, The Pathless Path, can be found in the show notes at rolfpotts.com slash deviate. And as always, you can contact me with insights or questions at deviate at rolfpotts.com. This episode was produced by Cedar Van Tassel, who also does the theme music. Thanks for listening, and I hope you tune in for future episodes of Deviate with Rolf Potts. <laughs>